Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Radio Westeros, episode 14, A White Knight. Hi there, listeners, and thanks for tuning in to Radio Westeros today. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston, and with me is Yoke Boy in England. Hey there, listeners. Really glad that you've joined us. And today we're looking at Sir Barristan Selmy. He's an ageing warrior who's achieved much in his lifetime. He has. And so we'll start by looking at his history, his heroics, and why he's known as Barristan the Bold. Then we'll look closely at his arc, from his time as Lord Commander of the King's Guard to his time as Arstan Whitebeard. And for you regular listeners, you might know that we've been looking at knighthood in recent episodes, so we'll tie up that theme today, and we're going to consider to what extent a knight's vow might clash with King's Guard vows, and we'll see what kind of dilemmas that causes characters like Baristan. Mm, from there, we'll look at the rest of his arc in A Dance with Dragons and speculate on what his future might hold. We also have a song from the fandom, readings of Barristan's dismissal from the Kingsguard, his fight with Kraz, and more. So we really hope that you're going to enjoy listening today. And if you do, you can like, upvote, link, follow us on social media, YouTube, or fan forums. Our central hub is RadioWesteros.com, and we appreciate any help that we can get. So thanks if you've helped us spread the word. And okay, let's get started now with Sir Barristan Selmy. It is chivalry that makes a true knight, not a sword. Without honour, a knight is no more than a common killer. It is better to die with honour than to live without it. So, the first time we hear of Sir Barristan Selmy in game, we learn that he's both of the Kingsguard and a living legend. He's so famous in Westeros that Bran Stark idolizes him and aspires to be a Kingsguard knight himself. Yeah, and given the North does not have the tradition of knighthood that the South does, it's really saying something about Barristan's exploits. As Sansa says, the first time we meet the man, the honor is mine, good knight. Even in the far north, the singers praise the deeds of Barristan the Bold. Hmm, Sir Barristan sounds like a medieval celebrity, doesn't he? Yes, he's like the poster boy. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, going back to Brand's initial thoughts, he places Barristan in a list of unquestionably legendary Westerosi knights, including Serwin of the Mirror Shield, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the White Bull Gerald Hightower, and Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. But Barristan is the odd one out on Brand's list because he's the only one that's still living. He's a legend in his own lifetime, which is solidified when Bran thinks... The greatest living knight was Sir Barristan Selmy, Barristan the Bold, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Father had promised that they would meet Sir Barristan when they reached King's Landing, and Bran had been marking the days on his wall, eager to depart, to see a world he had only dreamed of and begin a life he could scarcely imagine. So, we see how knights and the Kingsguard are an inspiration for Bran. And the early themes associated with Barristan, such as bows, honor, aging, will come to later. But with Barristan's legendary deeds reaching the corners of the Seven Kingdoms, transcending cultural barriers, and getting young children into the training yard, we're going to look first at what Barristan's deeds actually were, and why he's thought and spoken of so highly. Yeah, so let's take a look at Sir Barristan Selmy's CV, and see if he really measures up as a legend, or if his reputation has been overblown. Okay, so, House Selmy is a Stormlands house within the Dornish Marches, who are thus called Marcher Lords, with a history of protecting the Stormlands against the Dornish. And the Marcher Lords of Westeros are inspired by the real-life medieval Marcher Lords of England, who lived on the borderlands between England and Wales in the generations after the Norman Conquest. These lords were extremely powerful and were charged with protecting the borders of England at a time when hostility between the Norman English and the Welsh was at its peak. So the society that developed there was quite distinct, at times violent and geographically remote, it probably bore a strong resemblance to the American West in the frontier days. And given that this situation seems to have inspired the Dornish marches, we wonder about the character of the lords who protect the remote outposts of the Stormlands. Yeah, they must be a hard and independent bunch, possibly clannish and subject to rivalries as the Welsh marcher lords were. We haven't seen too many of them, but those we have, Beric Dondarrion... Barristan Selmy, Balon Swan of the Kingsguard, who stood up for Tyrion at his trial, and Rolam Storm, the bastard of Nightsong, whom Stannis named Castellan of Dragonstone when he left for the Wall, all seem to fit the bill. Yes, those are all pretty hard men, aren't they? Yes, and pretty independent too, I'd say. Right, so perhaps no surprise for Barristan. And Barristan was the firstborn son to Lionel, the knight of Harvest Hall, and Lionel's knighthood might have been some inspiration to young Barristan, as well as his geographical background, when certain deeds earned him the nickname of Barristan the Bold. Right. At age 10, Barristan decided to try his skills in attorney at Blackhaven, as was recorded in the White Book. He found some scraps of armour and entered as a rather small mystery knight. Prince Duncan the Small unhorsed him in the jousting, and rather than mocking the child saw his courage, and so Barristan Selmy became Barristan the Bold by the word of royalty. And this bold moniker turned out to be rather more fitting to him than the armour that he wore. At 16, he had his revenge on Duncan the Small, unhorsing the Targaryen prince in a tourney. There, he also beat Duncan the Tall of the King's Guard, 
earning himself a knighthood at 16 years old. So, he's already fearless, skilled, and respected in tourneys, which is one way warriors can earn their reputation in Westeros. However, tourneys are one thing, but Barristan was to prove his worth where it counts most, in war. Yeah, and it was when the War of the Nine Penny Kings was being fought. From the World Book, we know the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Gerald Hightower, and his men were hard-pressed for a time, but as the war hung in the balance... A young knight named Sir Barrison Selmy slew Maylies in single combat, winning undying renown and deciding the issue in a stroke. Right, so Barristan was the one to finally not only tip the balance, but kill off the Ninepenny King threat by slaying the fearsome Maylis Blackfire. This was so significant because Maylis was the last of the Blackfire pretenders. The Blackfire rebellions had caused wars and suffering for too long, and you can imagine the relief of the common folk when this young knight ended, for now at least, the conflict that the Blackfire predicament had brought to Westeros. So, slaying the Blackfire threat? The CV is looking good for Barristan, isn't it? Yeah, Barristan's quite the hero so far, and he still isn't even in the Kingsguard. No, he isn't, and young Barristan was admitted to the Kingsguard in the reign of Jaehaerys II, and he sacrificed a betrothal, and as the eldest son his rights to the inheritance of his house. The first thing we know about the Kingsguard from Bran's early thoughts in game is that once you don that white cloak, you live only to serve your king. Yeah, and young Barristan gave up everything to take that position. The opportunity for honour and prestige clearly meant that much to him. And it was his devotion to protecting his king that brought about what might be Barristan's finest moment yet. Right, Duskendale in the reign of King Ares. Lord Dennis Darklin wanted a degree of autonomy from the crown for his region, and after Ares's refusal, he stopped paying his taxes and invited the king for a discussion. This was a barbed invitation, however, and Lord Dennis kidnapped King Ares. And taking the place by storm was almost out of the question. Duskendale had high walls, was well defended, and a formidable stronghold called the Dunfort held the king. Attempts at rescue were not going well until... Yeah, you can hear the Mission Impossible theme already, can't you? (laughs) Step up, Sir Barristan. Covert solo rescue is needed here. And here's what the World Book says happened at Duskendale. The songs of Sir Barristan's daring rescue of the king are many, and for a rarity, the singers hardly had to embroider it. Sir Barristan did indeed scale the walls unseen in the dark of the night, using nothing but his bare hands, and he did disguise himself as a hooded beggar as he made his way to the Dunfort. It is true as well that he managed to scale the walls of the Dunfort in turn, killing a guard on the war walk before he could raise the alarm. Then, by stealth and courage, he found his way to the dungeon where the king was being kept. And the story continues. By the time he had Ares Targaryen out of the dungeon, however, the king's absence had been noted and the cry went up. And then the true breadth of Sir Barristan's heroism was revealed, for he stood and fought rather than surrender himself or his king. And not only did he fight, but he struck first, taking Lord Darklin's good brother and master-at-arms, Sir Simon Hollard, and a pair of guards, unawares, slaying them all, 
and so avenging the death of his sworn brother, Sir Gawain Gaunt of the King's Guard, he hurried with the king to the stables, fighting his way through those who tried to intervene, and the two were able to ride out of the Dunfort before the castle's gates could be closed. Well, and the World Book also notes that he still had some work to do from there. So I don't think any readers or anyone within Westeros can dispute Sir Barristan Selmy's heroics here. Yeah, it's James Bond territory for sure. However, what followed in Duskendale is equally as impressive in a way. With no hostage, there was a brutal slaughter. Ares was madder than ever, and revenge was his. Darkland's kins were to be obliterated, and as good kin, that sentence was extended to House Hollard. And the Hollards were wiped out, except for the youngest. Barristan asked that the young Hollard be spared as a reward for his deeds. And after these exploits, Ares granted him the wish. And so we owe Sir Dontos Hollard, the drunken sloppy mouth fool, to Barristan's plea. Right, so in this instance, we see Sir Barristan is able to uphold his Kingsguard vows and also his knight's honour, protecting the king and protecting an innocent child. We'll see today that these ideals are not always compatible, though. Yeah, and even in this example, we do have to wonder if saving Ares was the right thing to do, something Barristan later ponders in Dance. As we've touched on in our last four episodes, there are moral and philosophical dilemmas involved in upholding vows and aspiring to be a virtuous true knight. And today we'll take a good look at that as Barristan's confusion on such matters becomes more and more pronounced. Yes, it does. And so Barristan, already in his story before the events of Game of Thrones even start, seems like the consummate hero, the perfect white knight. Oh, and we forgot to mention that he also... Rescued Lady Jane Swan from the Kingswood Brotherhood. And slew the group's fable leader, Simon Toyne, as a Kingsguard wiped out the outlaw band. And he cut down a dozen good men on the trident before being injured by arrow, spear, and sword. And he led the attack on Old Wick in the Greyjoy Rebellion. And he won countless tourneys, including one at King's Landing when he was 57 years old. Mm, make no mistake, in terms of combat ability, Barristan is the stuff of legends, the real deal. So, we'll be looking at this apparently perfect knight to see if he's really that perfect, starting with an analysis of his story in A Game of Thrones, where the groundwork for his themes is all laid out. Well spoken, child, as befits the daughter of Eddard Stark. I am honoured to know you, however irregular the manner of our meeting. I am Sir Barristan Selmy of the King's Guard. The Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and counsellor to Robert our King and to Aerys Targaryen before him. The honour is mine, good knight. Even in the far north, the singers praise the deeds of Barristan the Bold. Okay, so let's look at A Game of Thrones. After being established as a legend, the first time we actually see Barristan, we get a good sense of some of the dynamics tied to him and some of the problems he'll face in the story. Yeah, he arrives at Castle Darry as the royal party make their way south to King's Landing, and he proudly identifies as of the King's Guard. He mentions that he serves the usurped king, 
and is now serving the very man that overthrew him. He's pleasant to Sansa, showing his respect for children, and him and Sansa mention honour. He shows respect to Eddard, and Sansa calls him a good knight. In a light-hearted moment, Renly butts in and calls him Barristan the Old instead of Barristan the Bold. <laughs> okay, so the King's Guard, loyalty, knightly honour, respecting children, being a good guy, ageing and ageism, all themes for him that weave through his arc, established very early on here in this first Barristan scene. George often brings up the important themes for a character quite soon after meeting them. Yeah, he does seem to like doing that. So let's look at the scene and continue on through A Game of Thrones before his disappearance. So Barristan makes everyone laugh here and is shown to be a warm, decent man from the offset. His manner with Sansa relaxes her anxiety, making her feel comfortable. And all things considered, we get the strong sense that Barristan is one of the good guys of the story. Not only a heroic warrior, but also a grounded and likeable person. Hmm, although he has no direct connection with the Starks, his respect for Ned and Sansa furthers his portrayal as a good guy. And this is increased when Cersei orders the death of Lady. Here's a passage. Where is the direwolf? Cersei Lannister asked when her husband was gone. Beside her, Prince Joffrey was smiling. The beast is chained up outside the gatehouse, your grace. Sir Barristan Selmy answered reluctantly. And with that reluctance, not only do we begin to like Barristan more here, but we also get the first hint at the dilemma of a knight of the King's Guard. He's sworn to obey royalty as a King's Guard, but also has an obligation to protect and do the right thing as a knight. By obeying royalty, there arises a big problem if those you serve are not good people. This might lead to the vows of a king's guard being in direct opposition to those of a knight, and so both standards will be impossible to uphold. Given Barristan served Mad King Ares, he must carry a lot of internal conflict about the service he offered during the Targaryen reign. Hmm, and when Peter Baelish is watching Barristan, the aforementioned theme of ageing comes up again. Baelish calls him Old Selmy and is impressed by his sword skills, but insinuates his mind isn't quite as sharp as it used to be. So on the one hand, we learn that despite his age, Barristan is still a first-class warrior, but on the flip side, we sense prejudice against him. People define him by his age and are ready to write him off as an old has-been. Yet Ned replies to Littlefinger, saying that Barristan is as valiant and honourable as any man in King's Landing, and Ned's seal of approval is designed to reassure us about Barristan. And so the notion of Selmy as this perfect white knight is put into our minds. However, we know that George finds greyness and conflict in almost every character, and Barristan is no exception, which we'll discuss today. So, Littlefinger defines him by his age, Ned defines him by his honour. Perhaps there's some realism versus idealism in Littlefinger's and Ned's perception of Barristan, but I think it's true to say that between them, they both nailed down the pertinent aspects of the night. 
Yeah, there's frequent mentions of his white hair. And Barristan's 61 here, by the way, which is a ripe old age for a warrior in Westeros. And there's further highlighting of his honour, such as him standing vigil for Sir Hugh of the Vale after he's killed. Right, and as we said in our cat episode, honour can mean different things to different people. But when Barristan declares unamused and stiffly, that there's no honor in tricks, regarding Loras riding a mare in heat, we get a good sense of Barristan's honor. Here it's about sportsmanship, fairness, and chivalry, some of the classic ideals of a true knight. In the first decision that we see Selmy make as a Kingsguard, again we get to understand the dilemma of a sworn brother. Robert is drunk and screaming about wanting to fight in the melee, and Barristan is shown to do nothing. He just doesn't interfere. Barristan's simply seen looking troubled. His Kingsguard vows to obey and the vow to protect are really in conflict here. And lots more on conflicting vows today. But continuing, then we see Barristan written off on account of his age once more by one of the sharp minds of King's Landing. It's Barristan Ned this time in a discussion about the ineffectual nature of the Kingsguard. We now wonder ourselves if Barristan is truly fit to be a protector of the king. Yeah, the king he currently serves was once an outlaw. Robert usurped Barristan's old king, whom he was sworn to protect. We're gently reminded of this fact as Ned recalls Barristan's exploits on the Trident, slaying a dozen good men who are friends to Robert and Ned both. This hints to another theme linked with honour and the Kingsguard, Barristan has joined the enemy once already. Of course, he'll go on to revert back to the Targaryen cause, and so with the Kingsguard ideal that it's an honour to die for one's king, we can wonder if changing sides like this after the death of Ares is a question mark upon Barristan's loyalty. Yeah, you'd think loyalty should be the first prerequisite of a king's guard, which is something we'll be considering today. Well, later, Barristan shows his disgust over the plan to kill the pregnant Daenerys Targaryen, arguing that it's dishonorable. And linking back to Barristan's switch of allegiance, we later see him recalling the fact that Rhaegar's children were killed and presented to Robert. So again, we realize that Barristan must be holding on to many regrets born from his conflict of interest and the dilemmas that he's faced as a man who's invested so much of himself to obey another. When Danny thinks of Barristan's going over to the usurper, she wonders if all men in the Seven Kingdoms are false and categorizes him with the king-slaying Kingsguard, Jamie Lannister. Yeah, and that's an interesting comparison. And talking of the death of a king, things soon change for Barristan when Robert goes hunting and Lancel Lannister is serving the drinks. Barristan's on King's Guard duty when Robert is mortally wounded by a boar, which must have been really devastating for this Lord Commander. Yeah, and with people already whispering behind his back about his age, this legendary warrior is pale as his white armour when he tells Ned... This is the third king to die whilst he's been a king's guard, and we see his upset here. Sir Barristan seemed old beyond his years. I have failed my sacred trust. Even the truest knight cannot protect a king against himself, Ned said. Right, Ned's showing some wisdom there. We might not have seen the boar incident actually on page, 
But we did see Robert drunk at the melee, as we mentioned, wanting to fight and risk himself. The King's guards can't both protect and obey the King in situations like this, and it's almost a repeat of that melee scene. Renly lets us know that the situation with the boar was indeed very similar to that of the tawny. He says, My brother commanded us to stand aside and let him take the boar alone. And with Robert's demise, Barristan faces major changes. Now Joffrey is his king, and despite Ned's thinking his loyalty could be tested, Barristan is, quote, honor-bound to protect and defend the boy. He shows shock when Robert's words are ripped up by Cersei, and again we see how being bound to a king is really leaving yourself open to the whims of fate, and in this instance, a crazy boy king. No, you wouldn't want to be serving Joff. And so the shift in power to Joffrey and House Lannister is one change that he faced. And another is that he's now more open than ever to suspicion about his age, given the nature of Robert's death. And these two factors come together in the throne room when he's dismissed from the King's Guard on account of his age. A King's Guard serves until death. So this was perhaps the biggest insult and slap in the face to Barristan, the apparent greatest living knight. And the reader can be forgiven if they think Cersei was right to orchestrate this manoeuvre. Barristan is very old for a warrior, and Robert did die on his watch. But we go on to learn that not only is Barristan still an excellent warrior, but that Cersei organised this to make space for Joff's dog on the King's Guard, the Hound, who isn't even a knight, and also makes her brother-slash-lover, Jaime, the new Lord Commander. It's worth noting that Varys actually engineered Barristan's dismissal, which is an interesting discussion for another time. But as other Lannisters note, Cersei has given the most admired knight in Westeros away, with him now likely to join the opposition. Oh, Cersei. (laughs) And Barristan, as we learn in Storm leaves from his dismissal and goes to the White Tower and completes his final entry into the Kingsguard's White Book. Hmm, he's quite a cheeky guy. Yes. (laughs) So then this aging knight pulls off another of his miraculous and brave escapes, not dissimilar to the situation in Duskendale. Yeah, we learn that Barristan cut a gold cloak's face open with his knife. And after being pursued, he rode down a guardsman, wrenched his spear from him and drove it right through the throat of the nearest pursuer and then went on to escape. Another moment of bravery bordering on madness from Barristan. But he wasn't finished there. He snuck back into King's Landing, disguised as a poor old man, and sadly witnessed the death of Ned Stark. He seems to have existed for a short while in a way similar to the way Arya Stark was at that point. Right, the two might have even seen each other unknowingly. That's true, they both were living rough there. Right, and here, Barristan's age, which is presented as his weakness by certain characters, becomes a useful tool as he cloaked himself in age to avoid capture. Barristan's arc brings up the issue of ageism. Now we know he's as competent as knights half his age, there's perhaps a statement about this prejudice. Yeah, Barristan's clearly more than capable at 61 years of age. And we see that Barristan now goes incognito with a bearded disguise, something he makes good use of later on. We learn that he vowed to find his true king after his dismissal, and characters wondered about Stannis and Robb Stark. 
However, that king was Viserys, whom he thought was alive, and so began his journey to further the Targaryen cause once again. So far in his story, Sir Barristan Selmy seems like a good, competent, brave man amidst questions over his loyalty, and we do see how he places so much of his identity and purpose in serving a king. When offered a generous tract of land, servants, and a golden retirement fund, Barristan can't even contemplate it. On one hand, yes, it's an insult to the established Kingsguard tradition, and he's done many great deeds in his time, too. But the reader has to wonder if Barristan is simply lost if he has no king to obey, as Cersei goes on to note later. The idea of having servants didn't seem to sit well with him at all, and aside from tapping into his fears of ageing and being discarded, Barristan is a man who has given up everything to do his duty, to obey, serve, and to protect his king. And this is something we'll come back to. He's been doing this for so long now, perhaps the thoughts of a change of lifestyle is just too much for him. And I think this is a frightening prospect for many ageing people. Yeah, that natural fear is encapsulated in the dismissal scene, set against the cruel mockery and sniggers of those younger and more powerful. Everyone around laughed at him. And I think we would expect that Joff, Jano Slint, Littlefinger, and Cersei would do that. But his white brothers laughed too, and he had been their lord commander only moments before. Mm, how belittled and patronized he must have felt there. It says he looked shamed and went red, too angry to speak. So small wonder he was opening a gold cloak's face soon after. Yeah, and they did underestimate him in several ways, so a sweet revenge there. Yes, that was very sweet. Mm, so the regret was long felt by some of those involved, though, most notably by Cersei, as Tywin was so unimpressed by her folly that he sent Tyrion to King's Landing to bring her and Joffrey to heel. Yeah, Tyrion tells Cersei that this dismissal is why Tywin sent him to King's Landing as the acting hand. So another one-up for Barristan then? The last laugh for sure. So this dismissal scene, which we're about to have a reading of, is actually very sad. You really feel for this legendary knight having sounds of disrespect thrown right into his face, utterly humiliated and in public. Mm, and that's not to mention the upjumping of the Kingslayer to fill his Lord Commander's boots. The man who must be, in Barristan's eyes, the antithesis of the true knight he himself aspires to be. He says that Jamie is a false knight who profaned his blade with the blood of the king he had sworn to defend. Mm, so bitter there. Uh, of course, Kingslaying being one of the ultimate dishonours. Jamie and Barristan really do seem like opposites at this point. And okay, let's relive some of Barristan's pain here, as he is discarded, rejected, thrown away, and soon after mocked after a near lifetime of service to the throne. Here's an extract of Barristan's dismissal from the King's Guard. Rise, Sir Barristan, Cersei Lannister said. You may remove your helm. My lady? Standing, the old knight took off his high white helm, though he did not seem to understand why. You have served the realm long and faithfully, good sir, and every man and woman in the Seven Kingdoms owes you thanks. Yet now I fear your service is at an end. It is the wish of king and council 
that you lay down your heavy burden. My burden? I fear I... I do not... Geno Slint spoke up. Her grace is trying to tell you that you're relieved as Lord Commander of the King's Guard. The tall, white-haired knight seemed to shrink as he stood there, scarcely breathing. Your grace, the King's Guard is a sworn brotherhood. Our vows are taken for life. Only death may relieve the Lord Commander of his sacred trust. Whose death, Sir Barristan? The Queen's voice was soft as silk. Yours? Or your king's? Your Grace, I was chosen for the White Swords in my twenty-third year. It was all I had ever dreamed from the moment I first took sword in hand. Sir Gerald Hightower himself heard my vows. Toward the king with all my strength, to give my blood for his. I fought beside the White Bull and Prince Lewin of Dawn, beside Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. I helped shield King Ares and his father, Jaehaerys, before him. Your time is done, Cersei Lannister announced. Joffrey requires men around him who are young and strong. The council has determined that Sir Jamie Lannister will take your place as the Lord Commander of the Sworn Brothers of the White Swords. The Kingslayer, Sir Barristan said, his voice hard with contempt. The false knight who profaned his blade with the blood of the king he'd sworn to defend. Have a care for your words, sir, the queen warned. You are speaking of our beloved brother, your king's own blood. Lord Varys spoke. We are not unmindful of your service, good sir. Lord Tywin Lannister has generously agreed to grant you a handsome tract of land north of Lannisport, beside the sea, with golden men sufficient to build you a stout keep, and servants to see to your every need. Sir Barristan looked up sharply. A hall to die in and men to bury me. I thank you, my lords. But I spit upon your pity. Okay, so a very sad and defining moment for Barristan there. Despite characters wondering if he'd join Rob Stark or Stannis and Renly's conviction that he would show up for his cause, which, by the way, was the King's Guard place Renly kept open that Brienne ended up taking, Barristan actually went for Viserys. When he arrived in Essos, Viserys was dead, but that news didn't arrive in King's Landing until around Joff's name day, after Barristan's departure, and so Illyrio sent him on to Danny. And it's lucky for Danny that he did. Wearing his rough hooded cloak, beard grown out and cloaked in age, Barristan, as the squire Arstan Whitebeard, soon saves Danny's life. It's worth noting that Barristan earned his nickname The Bold, whilst in disguise as a mystery knight, and he used a hooded cloak in the Duskendale rescue and dons a disguise later on in dance, so we see that he clearly likes going incognito. Yeah, he does like to dress up. Well, in this instance, he's trying to prove his loyalty because he served a family that usurped Danny's father. We learn later that Arstan is also the name of the current head of House Selmy, the seat Barristan gave up, and Barristan is Arstan Selmy's great-uncle. Anyways, Arstan Whitebeard soon proves his worth to Danny, using his staff to knock the jewel box that contained a venomous manticore out of her hand. Mm, the sorryful men were very sorry Arstan was there, and I don't think strong Belwas would have been quite so quick. 
So again, the hero, we immediately see Arstan's use as a guard to Danny. Posing as a squire to Belwas, Illyrio has sent him on with three ships for Danny. Barristan might have known about the Pentos connections from small council meetings. Hmm, anyway, Arstan is a suspicious character right away, both in story and to the reader. Danny thinks he has a look of Westeros about him, and the reader must wonder, as Jorah Mormont does, about such a competent old man being a squire. Yes, this Arstan does seem familiar, but the important thing for Danny is that she thinks that she can trust him. He saves her life and brings her ships, and she notes that he had a great dignity to him, a quiet strength she liked. So, perhaps struggling with Jorah's control issues, Arstan is a nice boon for Danny at the end of Clash. Yes, at this stage, Arstan does seem like good news. And speaking of Jorah, Arstan's arrival really shakes up the dynamics around Danny. As we go into Storm, a petty rivalry develops between these two men. Luckily for Arstan, Jorah doesn't recognise him at this stage. However, Arstan does know Jorah, and this leads to their first moment of friction. Arstan says, A change in the wind may bring the gift of victory. He glanced at Sir Jorah. Or a lady's favour, knotted round an arm. Mormon's face darkened. Be careful what you say, old man. Mm, and this is a nod to Jorah's tourney victory where he impressed Lynesse Hightower, the woman that was to be part of his downfall. Arstan must sense Jorah's possessiveness of Danny and knows the damage the streak in him can bring. Exactly. So Jorah is suspicious of Arstan because he's so clingy to Danny, and Arstan dislikes Jorah because he knows that he's a soiled knight, dishonoured for selling people into slavery to support a beautiful woman that he fell for. Remember that all along, Arstan knows Jorah had informed on Danny but can't reveal this information yet, as he's still obliged to hide his identity. And so, the stage is set for more teenage bickering between these two. Yes. <laughs> it's a nice triangle with Arstan wanting honour, trust, and the job of protecting Danny, while Jorah perhaps wants a little bit more. But when we get to Astapor, we see Barristan begin to show his use as an advisor to Danny. He speaks Valyrian, which is another clue that he's served the Targaryens, and he's outspoken when it comes to the endurance of the Unsullied. I call that madness, not courage, he says, when hearing that they'll die so willingly. Yeah, and perhaps there's some subtle comparisons being drawn between the Unsullied and Kingsguard like Barristan, despite what he thinks. Barristan calling the Unsullied's endurance madness, not courage reminds us of Tywin's assessment of Barristan's Duskendale rescue plan, which goes, This was a boldness that Tywin Lannister felt bordered on madness. Yeah, okay, so perhaps Barristan has more in common with the Unsullied than he thinks. There's certainly a continuum of subservient obedience for one's master, and Selmy and the eunuchs are both on it somewhere. Krasnus goes on to highlight the similarities with the Unsullied. He says... I've heard that in the Sunset Kingdoms men take solemn vows to keep chaste and father no children, but live only for their duty. Is it not so? And while the Unsullied are undoubtedly more extreme in perhaps every way, there might be some commonalities, perhaps an uncomfortable thought for our old Kingsguard here. And as we go on, Barristan's role of advisor grows. 
he becomes more important to Danny, offering wisdom, honest counsel, and sharing information about her family and Westeros. The two actually get on quite well, and he shares her values of protecting children and a distaste for slavery. Yeah, all things considered, Arstan is paving the way for Jorah's dismissal, already functioning as Jorah was, allowing George to replace one with the other next to Danny. The information about her family, though, is something, as the reader might have figured out, that only Arstan could offer. Yes, and he wouldn't try and sneak a kiss either. But Arstan, being a former Targaryen Kingsguard, holds both risks and benefits from his point of view. There's a good scene where Arstan talks of the tourney at Storm's End, where an unnamed knight won. He says, That honour went to another knight of the Kingsguard, who unhorsed Prince Rhaegar in the final tilt. And it was Arstan himself who won that tourney, as we learn from the White Book later on. People have noticed this and put it down to him being modest. But we would add that Arstan really doesn't want to say the word Barristan whilst he's disguised. No, he definitely doesn't. But soon the disguise is to be lifted. In another assassination attempt, Miro goes all out to try and kill Danny. Arstan, armed with only a wooden staff, absolutely wipes the floor with him. He moves cat quick and so fast she could hardly follow before he breaks a bone in Miro's calf and it goes right through his skin and then he smashes his temple. Mm, yet another heroic scene there and this quashes any doubt about the old man's abilities. However, Arston has now given his game away. No one will believe he's just a random squire. And so Arston becomes Barristan once again, finally unmasked or unbearded by Jorah. Unbearded, yes. <laughs> and at this moment, Jorah also gives his own game away, as the unmasking of Barristan leads to his exposure as an informant. So some really interesting dynamics going on between these two. And as Barristan gives his fearful plea and explanation about why he switched allegiances after the rebellion, he does well to mention that Jura fought against Targaryens there. Well, like we said, this is like two teenage boys squabbling for the attention of a female and both doing the dirty on each other in the process. It's really quite amusing to read. And so Barristan and Jorah are then sent into the sewers of Marine as a penitence. And we see that in the face of accusations of being a traitor, a liar, turncloak, and false knight by his new queen, Barristan still walks proudly. Yeah, Barristan walks proudly, and that's in contrast to Jorah, who looks guilty. And it's clear for Barristan, as we see with other characters, that vows, values and aspirations might sometimes be in conflict, as we've talked about. Troublesome to even the finest and truest of knights. The true knight, which is really what Barristan must see himself as to some extent, is an ideal. Barristan being called false and a traitor raises some interesting questions about knights, the king's guard, vows and honour that we'll discuss in our next segment. And so far in his time with Danny, Barristan has shown his worth as an advisor with honest counsel, knowledge of governance and history, and crucially, as a surprisingly astute and physically capable guardsman. Even so, Danny notes that along with Jorah, the disgraced knight, they betrayed me, they saved me, but they lied. 
Yes, so we see Danny in conflict there. And despite her cognitive dissonance, and unlike with Jura, Danny does forgive Barristan and he takes his vows sword in hand. He's now in her Queen's Guard and clearly he has things yet to prove. And we'll take a look at how he fares in A Dance with Dragons a bit later on. But now it's time for a song from the fandom. Here's Westerrhyme with... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. With the Barristan Blues. in the bold, and yeah, I'm kind of old, but against my sword, your ass is sure to fold. Can't say you weren't told that you're gonna get rolled. Got a heart of gold, but I'll leave you dead cold. Trying my hand in tourney since the age of 10. At the tourney, the hand was still whipping up. I'm pushing 60, yet moving real swiftly. Making men half my age look frail and sickly. You look familiar, lass. What's your grandma's name? She could real fine ass. Back in the day, I guess what I'm saying is I could be your grandpa. Can't know for sure, I got no heirs by law. Been the KG roster when I was just 23. Ever since that day, been living less than free. Gave up my inheritance and a young lady's hand. So own the name, sell me, but no claim to our land. I've seen my share of war and rebellion. Seen men die shrieking, split open like melons. But I'm always striving to do what's right. And that's why I was fighting on King Aerie's side. He might have been mad, but it took a solemn vow. What I won't abandon, would rather push a plow. Or take the black, just like Jamie's ass should have. Think anyone else in his position wouldn't. But his pops is the power behind the crown. Would need some deep pockets to face him down. I'm a righteous guy, never prone to cruelty. So I earn robbers' pardon for doing my duty. I'm embarrassed in the bold, and yeah, I'm kinda old. But against my sword, your ass is sure to fold. Can say you weren't told that you're gonna get rolled. Got a heart of gold, but I'll leave you dead cold. So serving out my years, commanding the king's guard. It ain't the kind of thing a man is free to discard. When that poor rush Robert felt time slow down. Watching slow motion, picked us going to town. Got there too late, had no time to react. Robert's drunker than usual, and that's a fact. Stuffed in his guts and carried him home. It'll make an interesting page in the Kingsguard's tome. Then I stood in the throne room and watched in shock. As a robber's last command, Cersei made a mock. Edward thought he had the upper hand. 
believed at his back the city watch would stand They killed his men, threw men in a black cell That dumbass Joffrey thought he'd bid me farewell He said you're too old to wear a white cloak When the going gets tough, you're sure to choke Why don't you retire to a nice warm keep? So I tore off my cloak and threw my sword at his feet Walked out the door and made my way to the gate Some dudes were following, but only lightweights I prayed at the sept and then made up my mind Things in this city are on a rapid decline Gonna find the rightful heir to the Iron Throne And do what I can to bring him home And that was Westerheim with his track, The Barristan Blues. Thanks to him for letting us play that one. He does these great overviews of characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. And you can find Westerheim on SoundCloud for many more of these nerdcore tracks. Okay, so let's talk about the Kingsguard, Knighthood, and how the two can come into conflict. We've talked about Knighthood in our last four episodes, so we'll bring in those conclusions to form an overview of knights in this story. And the knights that we've mentioned are all Kingsguard at one time or another, so we can look from that perspective too. So, in the study of Barristan Selmy, a man who seems to hold his role and vows as a Kingsguard sacred with every breath, let's look at what those vows actually are. And then let's look at what we know of knights' vows, which Barristan and others also swore, to see where the contradictions in vows might arise. It's worth noting that Aegon the Conqueror's sister, Visenya, assembled the first Kingsguard and shaped their vows on the Night's Watches. We get almost all of our information about the Kingsguard vows from Barristan, and we get most of our information on the true knight ideal from Brienne and Jamie. So, Barristan actually says his king's or queen's guard vows to Danny and Storm, but talks so quietly no one can hear. But perhaps George wants to keep the vows a secret or vague for now. However, in Dance, he has a large chunk of text about the vows and a couple of other hints here and there. And there's a good thread at westrust.org about this, by the way, called The Text of the Kingsguard Vow by a poster called Twinslayer, who, with other contributors, pieced together many of the references. And Jamie's speech about conflicting vows had some points about the Kingsguard, so, if we piece together everything Barristan and Jamie say, we get something like this. A king's guard vows to defend the king and keep him safe, obey the commands of the king, keep the king's secrets, when asked, offer counsel to the king, give their life for the kings if necessary, and serve until his death or theirs, remain chaste, so don't have sex, Defend the king's honor and name, and protect the king's family, lovers, and even bastards if commanded to do so. So, those are what we can ascertain of these mysterious Kingsguard vows. They mostly revolve, as you'd expect, around keeping the king safe and doing what he or she tells you to do. Now let's look at the true knight, from Brienne and those discussing the ideal and vows with her. Again, Jamie's speech also contained elements of knightly vows, so mixing everything together, we get this about knighthood. Okay, a true knight must protect those weaker than themselves with their life, protect the innocent, never harm women or children, 
respect the gods, obey the laws. Yeah, that's what we can decipher of the knight's vows. Rather than obeying your king, this time it's the laws. The emphasis is on protecting those weaker than oneself. And in a way, the two sets of vows do have commonalities, but there's huge room for contradiction for anyone that's spoken both. And given Kingsguard, before the Sander exception, were sworn knights, there must have been many vow-based dilemmas through the ages for those white knights, and we'll talk about some we see in this story. But first we just wanted to point out the purpose of knighthood. In times before police, organised protection, and with primitive judicial systems, people were largely left to defend their own communities. Knighthood encouraged individuals to take up arms and assert power, but also to adhere to an established moral and behavioural code, for which the word honour might be used as shorthand. In this way, people could use their martial prowess to help themselves, the weak and the vulnerable against other, more unscrupulous individuals. It was part of the self-governance that medieval populations needed to embrace, a kind of law based on instilling moral values alongside fighting skills. And this knightly pattern of behaviour wasn't just confined to medieval Europe. There's other examples of honour-chasing men bearing arms. For instance, the Japanese samurai. Okay, so that's a bit about knights and their value to society. A true knight could help a community police itself, true and capable individuals could fight the good fight, and not abuse the power combat skills can give over others. And it seems that honour is the crucial difference. As Barristan says... Without honour, a knight is no more than a common killer. Yes, so that's knights, and with Kingsguard on the other hand, they must obviously dedicate themselves to serving and protecting the king. In theory at least, this also protects the innocent small folk in a way, as a stable monarchy, if it's a good king anyway, should benefit everyone. Now we'll consider the knight's vows against the king's guard vows and show that in certain situations, you simply can't uphold both at the same time. Jamie's speech to Catelyn about vows highlights this. First, he recites what must be part of the king's guard vows. Defend the king. Obey the king. Keep his secrets. Do his bidding. Your life for his. And he continues with family values. Obey your father. Love your sister. And then what must be the knightly vows? Protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. Jamie said this to outline to Cat the knots and Cat's-22s he's found himself in. His conclusion that no matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other, highlights this and really seems like a fair assessment. So, when we learn the truth about Ares, we see an example. He was ordered by his king to kill his father. Kinslaying is an affront to the gods and would be abhorred by any true knight. Add in Jamie snuffing out the wildfire plot, thereby protecting the innocent people of King's Landing, and we can see Jamie chose to be a knight over a king's guard here. Yeah, and Jamie was actually upholding his honour as a knight there. And another example is with Sandor. He's officially no knight but shows his desire to protect the innocent female Sansa by protesting when King Joff orders his Kingsguard brothers to beat her. And in this way, he's kind of embodying the qualities of the true knight, despite never taking knightly vows. Right, there's two examples of inner conflict felt by Kingsguard. 
And with the shame of Kingslayer hung around Jamie's neck, there is an irony. Jamie's a hero for killing Ares in truth, but gets nothing but scorn poured on him for the perceived dishonor, including from apparent true knight Barristan. And more on those two later. This theme of inner conflict is so far just hinted at in Barristan's arc, but these seeds will grow and grow later in his story. The stage for Sir Barristan of the Queen's Guard, and an archetypal member of the King's Guard before that, having similar dilemmas to Jamie, has truly been set. Mm, but first, we want to consider the knights we've recently covered and see the differences and similarities George has given these characters. So there's six, and we're going to pair them for comparison and contrast. All six have been Kingsguard at one time as well, and all are great warriors. So first of all, we have Sander Clegane and Gregor Clegane. So, Sandor Clegane. He doesn't believe in knights, won't take the vows, and thinks knights are all false and liars. His views seem to oppose Barristan's statement that without honour, a knight is no more than a common killer. As shown in Sandor's quote, A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows, the sacred oils, and the ladies' favours, they're silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. However, we think that in Sandor's case, you've got to remember that it's his brother Gregor who is the falsest of knights and truly without any honour, that seems to have shaped his opinion. So maybe Sander and Barristan aren't in complete disagreement as they first seem. But Sandor is a very honest person. He isn't always chivalrous, but sometimes embodies facets of the true knight. He has a protective streak, and there's evidence of an innate code of conduct not dissimilar to a knight's honour, like when he wouldn't stab at Gregor's unprotected face. And Gregor, in contrast to Sander, he's been anointed. He's a brute. He has no honour at all, no moral conscience. He's an absolute monster to those weaker than himself, and is aptly named as a false knight by Ned Stark. He's single-handedly called into question the validity of knighthood, emphasised by Sander's arc and story. However, Gregor is very obedient to his master, and we get insight into this mentality and clash when he advises others to obey, serve, and live. Yeah, funnily enough, Gregor is actually perfect for the Kingsguard, in a sense. He will die for you, he will serve and obey you, and do things that others won't do. And that obey, serve, and live line happens to be very close to the Kingsguard ideals, and also what the small folk swear to their lords. Gregor highlights the fine and often blurred line. What is a good Kingsguard? How far does obedience go? Gregor was far along that continuum with Tywin as his master, and of course Sir Robert Strong, now of the Kingsguard, might be about to show how useful an obedient, silent and hardened sworn brother can be. Hmm, so some greyness in assessing Gregor as a king's guard. We'd say he's surprisingly well suited to being a king's guard, although he's the falsest of knights. Okay, and the next pair we want to look at. It's Dunk from the Dunk and Egg Tales and Brienne. So let's start with Dunk. 
So Dunk, like Sander, is very honest, and ironically, one of his few lies is that he was knighted by Sir Arlen. Still, he's very protective of the weak, risks his own life to protect others, it's really shades of the true knight. He has honor, chivalry, and is almost everything we're told a knight should be. He joined the King's Guard, but we don't know what happened there, or if he'd been knighted at that point. Yeah, okay, and now Brienne. Brienne is not a knight, and the only one that we've covered who can't be a knight, this is because of her gender. She holds vows to be very sacred, essentially similar to Dunk with his honesty. Like Dunk, she feels genuinely protective of those weaker than her, and is one of the truest knights in the series. She is sometimes stubborn, naive, and idealistic, which is perhaps part of the territory of trying to be a true knight down to the letter. Unlike Sandor and Jamie, Brienne earned a place in her Kingsguard, fulfilling her dream, although she's now considered by many to be a Kingslayer. So, Brienne and Dunk with commonalities, and both hold up well as true knights, notwithstanding their actual status. It's interesting to consider what Brienne would have done in one of these Kingsguard knighthood double binds, as she seems almost dependent on vow following, and might be lost either without vows or when they opposed each other. Okay, so finally we're looking at a really interesting pair, Jamie and Barristan. Hmm, these two have some excellent points to compare and contrast. At the beginning of the story, Jamie seemed like the soiled knight, contrasted with Barristan, who seemed quite perfect. However, let's look a little closer. Well, the first point of interest is with Ares. Jamie's greatest shame was killing his king. However, we learn that it was his finest hour, saving so many innocents. And Barristan's finest hour was saving Ares at Duskendale. However, this is revealed to be one of his greatest shames. Here are his thoughts and dance. The keeping of those vows had grown hard in the last years of King Ares' reign. He had seen things that it pained him to recall, and more than once he wondered how much of the blood was on his own hands. If he had not gone into Duskendale to rescue Ares from Lord Darkland's dungeons, the king might well have died there as Tywin Lannister sacked the town. Then Prince Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne, mayhaps to heal the realm. Duskendale had been his finest hour, yet the memory tasted bitter on his tongue. So, Jamie and Barristan, the two polar opposites, what an intriguing comparison. The keeping of vows had grown difficult in Ares's reign, he thinks, and insinuates that it might have been better if Ares had died. Barristan was hailed as a hero for Duskendale, and here he feels internal shame. And in a kind of reversal, Jamie was shouted out as a villain for killing Ares, but internally, he knew that he'd been a hero. Right, and whilst Jamie seems to hold Barristan in high regard, Barristan calls Jamie the false knight who profaned his blade with the blood of the king he had sworn to defend. So clearly he thinks they have little in common. But we wonder what Barristan would have thought of Jamie if he knew the truth of Ares's slaying. What other comparisons can we make between these two? Well, again, with a kind of reversal, Jamie thinks that the white cloak soiled him. And Barristan thinks the white cloak was soiled by Jamie and others. Hmm, interesting use of soiled knight in the text. As we said in the last episode, Jamie was introduced as a soiled knight. And just before his redemption arc took grip, he became very soiled, literally. 
He was extremely filthy, had decaying hand round his neck and a festering stump, and he soiled himself on his horse. So he's physically and symbolically soiled. And his redemption arc was kicked off in a bath scene, where, following the loss of the hand that made him Kingslayer, he was cleansed both literally and symbolically with the washing and Ares' backstory, respectively. Now, what's very interesting, we think, is that this soiled theme is now being used with Barristan in dance. After becoming deeply embroiled in Marinese politics, he thinks that the worst Kingsguard were always those who played the Game of Thrones. He's worried for his honor and is now facing serious dilemmas, the kind Jamie once had to deal with. Yes, and the word soiled starts to come into it, when he's really doubting himself more and more. He wonders if he's a traitor and doesn't want his knightly students to be knighted by him. They deserve better, Sir Barristan decided. Better a long life as a squire than a short one as a soiled knight. Yeah, he wonders if anyone whom he knights will end up being known as a soiled knight. And in the same chapter, Barristan actually starts feeling physically soiled. He's getting ready to arrest King Hisdar. Is this now getting into Jamie territory? Hmm, it might well be. Feeling soiled, literally and symbolically. Here's the quote. Sparring with his squires in the afternoon heat had left him feeling soiled and sweaty. And the next line after that, Barristan has a bath. Jamie, ding ding. And not just any bath, he scrubbed his skin till it was raw. And his clothes are described here. Stockings, small clothes, silk tunic, padded jerkin, all fresh washed and bleached. So, Barristan now in a bath scene, really cleaning himself, and he's laid out all those pristine clothes. However, unlike Jamie's bath, which must have been a giant sigh of relief, Barristan leaves his bath and continues with his inner torment and conflict as Queensguard. He thinks of the swarm brothers he served with and realises that some of them would consider what he's about to do as colluding with a traitor. So Barristan meets the shave pay and goes on to arrest King Hisdar. And we'll look at Barristan and Dance next, but we just wanted to point out that we think there's something going on between Jamie's and Barristan's arcs. And we have wondered if there's a place in the story for a perfect knight of the Kingsguard who despises a Kingslayer, only to find himself sailing pretty close to the Kingslaying winds himself. Yeah, and that's something that we've wondered about and we'll look at in the next segment with Barristan arresting his star. But that's it for our talk on the Kingsguard and knighthood. Um, we hope that you listeners who followed the last few episodes have enjoyed this theme of knighthood flowing through. And we'll conclude the Viles discussion by coming back to that William Faulkner quote. George uses this to describe his character writing goals. Faulkner said the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. Mm, the human heart in conflict with itself is explored in many different ways in the books. But vows serve as an excellent device to explore inner conflicts. And so the Kingsguard and knighthood being so contradictory within the souls of characters is exactly what George is going for. And it's worth noting that Kat vows to never order Brienne to do anything that would bring her dishonour and that she'll always have a place at her hearth, which seems to be what any lord would promise a sworn sword. 
It might be hinted in Barristan's vows with Danny that King's Guard's vows are one way. She didn't have to vow anything in return. And therein lies the problem. Before the Hound, all King's Guards were knights. And so a king knows that the King's Guard vows are on top of the knight's vows. They become one inseparable set of vows to those in service. But without a promise from the king, like the one that Cat made to Brienne, not to ask dishonour from the guards, the vows would have always been, and always will be, in conflict with themselves, just like the human heart. Okay, and we'll take a look at Barristan and Dance next and see what that can tell us about his Winds of Winter future. And to lead us in, here's a reading of Barristan's fight with the former pit fighter and now his star's king's guard, Kraz. Barristan versus Kraz. Fight! Only cowards dress in iron, Kraz declared, circling. No one wore armor in the fighting pits. It was blood the crowds came for, death, dismemberment, and shrieks of agony, the music of the scarlet sands. Sir Baristan turned with him. This coward is about to kill you, sir. The man was no knight, but his courage had earned him that much courtesy. Kraz did not know how to fight a man in armor. Sir Baristan could see it in his eyes, doubt, confusion, the beginnings of fear. The pit fighter came on again, screaming this time, as if sound could slay his foe where steel could not. The Iraq slashed low, high, low again. Selmy blocked the cuts at his head and let his armour stop the rest, while his own blade opened the pit fighter's cheek from ear to mouth, then traced a raw red gash across his chest. Blood welled from Kraz's wounds, that only seemed to make him wilder. He seized the brazier with his off-hand and flipped it, scattering embers and hot coals at Selmy's feet. Sir Barristan leapt over them. Kraz slashed at his arm and caught him, but the Iraq could only chip the hard enamel before it met the steel below. In the pit? That would have taken your arm off, old man. We are not in the pit. Mm, take off this armor. It is not too late to throw down your steel. Yield. Die, spat Kraz, but as he lifted his Iraq, its tip grazed one of the wall hangings and hung. That was all the chance Sir Barristan required. He slashed open the pit fighter's belly, parried the Iraq as it wrenched free, then finished Kraz with a quick thrust to the heart as the pit fighter's entrails came sliding out like a nest of greasy eels. And we hope you enjoyed that reading, Barristan, like Jorah before him, showing the value of Westerosi armor. So now, with those observations about Kingsguard and knights and the Kraz fight in mind, we're going to assess Barristan in A Dance with Dragons and lead up to the arrest of King Hisdar. And our aging and honor-seeking knight finds himself increasingly at the heart of Miranese politics. Yeah, one of the first mentions of Barristan in dance is by Illyrio. Talking with Tyrion, he says, Daenerys will have need of clever men about her. Sir Barristan is a valiant knight and true, but none, I think, has ever called him cunning. And Tyrion replies, Knights know only one way to solve a problem. 
they couch their lances and charge. So here's a reminder that Barristan, full the value that Danny sees in him, is perhaps not, or never will be, suited to playing the Game of Thrones. And there's further emphasis on this point when he suggests attorney for orphans, saying they could ride at rings and fight a melee with blunted weapons, a suggestion Danny knew was as hopeless as it was well-intentioned. Yeah, and Barristan follows Danny's orders to the letter. After she makes a joke, he puts pillows on her throne. It says, Sir Barristan's work, she knew. The old knight was a good man, but sometimes very literal. It was only a jape, sir. So early on in Dance, we get hints that, while Barristan is a combatant Queensguard, he perhaps lacks some common sense sometimes. He's quite astute, and definitely not stupid by any means, but seems somewhat out of touch with his surroundings. Remember Marine and the situation that he's in is really very different from what he's experienced so far during his long life. But when Barristan averts his eyes from Danny's breast whilst offering counsel, she again realises how useful he is. She thinks Jorah loved her as a woman, but Barristan loves her as a queen, and she finds his counsel useful here, as it's always been. With Jorah cast aside, Barristan is now vital to Danny, and whilst there might be pitfalls in having fewer counsellors, at least Danny feels she can trust a man who has no desire for her body. Barristan is almost comparable to eunuchs in this sense. He's not driven by any sexual motives. However, Barristan is not impartial and does have motives and preferences. With the counsel he gives Danny, which is part of the Kingsguard expectations when required, it becomes clear just how much he wants to go back to Westeros with her. Right, he must feel out of sorts in Marine. He calls it alien at one point. So he reminds Danny of Rhaegar and perhaps exaggerates about how many people will flock to her if she invades. He presents an idealized idea of invasion. And although he says he'll stay by her side whatever she chooses, he disapproves about Hisdar and says she should go to Westeros instead of marrying him. Yes, yeah, so Barristan's counsel, which is really appreciated by Danny, is becoming more and more political. His opinions are stronger and quite tightly focused now. He's really become a fully-fledged political advisor, as well as a go-to for military matters. We sense the growing burden on him, and he now faces many issues and dilemmas as head of Danny's Queensguard, with his queen finding it difficult to trust many of the people in positions of power around her. That's it. His responsibilities are growing as Marine becomes impossibly complex, Danny's reign is facing so many challenges, which we'll look at in a Danny episode one day, but Barristan gives military counsel when the city is facing siege. It says, What do you counsel, sir? Battle, said Sir Barristan. Marine is overcrowded and full of hungry mouths, and you have too many enemies within. We cannot long withstand a siege, I fear. Let me meet the foe as he comes north, on ground of my own choosing. So we see Barristan making a bold call here and a prelude to the Battle of Fire, which we're going to cover next episode with Brynden Beefish. But anyway, yeah, a growing sense of turmoil, which our old knight now finds himself right in the middle of. He's influencing Marine as an advisor, and all of a sudden we wonder if this man, who Illyrio said no one has ever called cunning, is getting increasingly out of his depth. 
But the plot thickened and deepened when Danny watched the fights on the Scarlet Sands reopening the fighting pit. Not only were certain locusts poisoned, but a dark shadow fell. Drogon, who had been missing, had sensed the excitement of the event and decided to pay a visit. And as we know, the dragon left with Barristan's queen on his back, with some saying that she died in the process. Barristan just can't imagine that being true, and resolves to continue on until Danny's return, leaving him as the queen's voice in this dire political time. Okay, and before we move into Barristan's point of view, we just wanted to highlight what happened with Drogon and Barristan. It says... Drogon roared full in Danny's face, his breath hot enough to blister skin. Off to her right, Danny heard Barristan Selmy shouting, Me! Try me! Over here! Me! Yes, there we see Barristan the Bold's bravery once again, courage bordering on madness. He tries to make good of his vow to give his life for Danny's, and attempts to distract a fire-breathing dragon. He would have rather been roasted alive or melted than see harm come to his queen. And nobody can question that. Yeah, he really is fearless, isn't he? At least in these kind of dangerous situations. Anyway, with Danny gone, we needed new eyes in Marine, and so Barristan got a point of view. This move helped solve George's Marinese knot, a writing predicament regarding who went to Marine and when. And his first POV chapter is named The Queen's Guard. And about time we got to know of Barristan's internal monologue. His first thoughts go like this. I am the Queen's man still, today, tomorrow, always, until my last breath, or hers. Barristan Selmy refused to believe that Daenerys Targaryen was dead. Mm, with rumours of Danny's death, the first thing to know is Barristan's conviction. Aside from everything else, Barristan might be fending off an identity crisis here. As Renly said in Clash, I know that old man. He needs a king to guard, or who is he? Right, and he's never been long without a king or queen since his initiation into the Kingsguard at 23 years of age. It's part of his self-concept, worn in through decades of servitude, and he's now too old to adapt to any other way. As we saw in-game, with no one to serve, Barristan is not a happy character. No, he's not. It's embedded into his identity. And soon he's preparing for rejection for a second time from King Hisdar. Yet this time it doesn't bother him. He feels a mutual mistrust with the king and considers himself Danny's man through and through. However, Hisdar doesn't reject him in the way that he thinks he will. And after choosing pit fighters as his allies in Kingsguard, the king tells Barristan his duties will remain and that he will also be the military leader of the Miranese forces. So the battle of fire is being set up here, but it's perhaps the sense of future conflict that starts Barristan contemplating his own mortality. Yeah, he often notes his age and finds it hard to climb steps and so on. Barristan's not someone who thinks he's immortal. He seems quite in tune with the reality of his decline and the threats that might lie ahead. He wants to train some of the freedmen as knight in a kind of knight's academy, knowing that when he's gone, his queen will still want protecting. And it's interesting that he wants to make knights of them. He's finding it hard to integrate into a different culture. His goal is Westeros. 
Although he's done quite well so far, perhaps he's finding it quite understandably difficult to adapt. But it's when the shave pate wants to meet him, knowing there'll be plotting involved, that we see Barristan's greatest fear about his current situation. It's one of the most poignant moments in his point of view. He thinks, He did not like the taste of this. It smelled of deceit, of whispers and lies and plots hatched in the dark. All the things he'd hoped to leave behind with the spider and Lord Littlefinger and their ilk. Barristan Selmy was not a bookish man, but he had often glanced through the pages of the White Book, where the deeds of his predecessors had been recorded. Some had been heroes, some weaklings, knaves, or cravens. Most were only men, quicker and stronger than most, more skilled with sword and shield, but still prey to pride, ambition, lust, love, anger, jealousy, greed for gold, hunger for power, and all the other failings that afflicted lesser mortals. The best of them overcame their flaws, did their duty, and died with their swords in their hands. The worst... The worst were those who played the Game of Thrones. Mm, And despite the thought about the worst Kingsguards being those who were too heavily involved in the clandestine plots of the game players, Barristan immediately starts playing the game himself, agreeing to meet the Shavepate. We wonder at this point if Barristan is becoming everything he despised in his time as a Kingsguard. And he's also painfully aware of exactly what he's doing. Yeah, he's been sucked in. And by misfortune and circumstance, Barristan is now facing grave and complex dilemmas. And perhaps both himself and the reader sense he might not walk out of this looking good. He's now filled with doubts about what to do in Danny's absence. He has no choice but to take initiative. And using one's common sense and initiative might be counterintuitive for Kingsguard sometimes. As Barristan contemplates his meeting with the Shavepate, he's well and truly playing the Game of Thrones. But remember, as Littlefinger said, some of those that think they're playing are merely pawns. Mm, it's no surprise then that we see Barristan thinking first on his glory at Duskendale, which still tastes bitter. And then on his vows, does he owe protection to his dar? He is embroiled in the vagueness, contradictions, and matters of interpretation that these vows can offer. Yeah, and his conclusion is here. The world was simpler when I had a Lord Commander to decide such matters. Now I am the Lord Commander, and it's hard to know which path is right. So, he can't tell what's the right or honourable path. Barristan doesn't know if speaking against his dar is right. He thinks, If the shavepate speaks treason, he will leave me no choice but to arrest him. His dar is my queen's consort, however little I may like it. My duty is to him, not Skahaz. Or was it? Yes, yeah, some serious cognitive dissonance here. Barristan Selmy's heart is truly in conflict with itself. Then, during a clandestine meeting with the shavepate... He's told of the idea that his dad tried to poison Danny with those locusts. And look at the end of their meeting. It says, If I join you in this, I would require your word that no harm would come to his dad's Olorak unless it can be proved that he had some part in this. The shavepate goes on, My word then, no harm to his dad until his guilt is proved. But when we have the proof, I mean to kill him with my own hands. I want to pull his entrails out and show them to him before I let him die. 
No, the old knight thought. If his dar conspired at my queen's death, I will see to him myself, but his death will be swift and clean. Okay, so Barristan will kill his dar himself if he's proven guilty. Now let's think about this. A perfect knight in the story who hated a kingslayer and called him soiled. And this perfect knight increasingly feels soiled himself, and now he's a stone's throw away from killing a king. If his dart is innocent, and the shave pate is playing Barristan here... Yeah, the shave pate might convince Barristan of his dar's supposed guilt somehow, and Barristan will be the epitome of everything he stands against. He'd be a kingslayer. Barristan points to some ambiguity in his thoughts and in his vows about not being bonded to his dar, but perhaps if he realizes he's killed an innocent king, consort to his queen Daenerys, he might consider himself to be a kingslayer. Yeah, and he does sometimes think that he owes his loyalty to his dar, so it's a really interesting thought. And with the similarities and contrasts with Jamie that we mentioned, we think it would be a suitable and plausible tail end to Barristan's arc. The perfect knight becomes the soiled knight, whilst being politically outmaneuvered in the transition. And killing his dar is just one way of him becoming a soiled knight. But if that doesn't happen, there are other ways, such as betraying Danny if she returns with so much fire and blood as to remind him of Ares. Hmm, yeah, there's various ways Barristan could lose his beloved honour. But wherever we're headed, we do think Barristan's arc is veering into some kind of perceived dishonour, despite his efforts to try and do the right thing wherever possible. So anyway, the shave pay is influencing Barristan, and they agree to take his dar hostage tonight. All my men will be in place, the shave pay tells him. The word is Grolio. And through the Kingbreaker chapter, Barristan waits to take his dar. He thinks of Duskendale again, and also is shown to be protective of children. Whatever mess Barristan finds himself in, or gets himself into, I think we're being reminded that essentially he is a good guy. And to paraphrase Jamie, it's his white cloak that's soiling him here. So Barristan trains his students. He teaches them about what makes a true knight. It's chivalry, he says. Then, as we said, we get this scene where he feels soiled and cleans himself, as if to wash away the feeling of sin. He dons perfect, sharp white clothing, and he's ready to arrest Hisdar. The whole chapter is a build-up with the looming message about honor, right and wrong, and so on. And then he says this. I am not made for this, he reflected. Plots, ploys, whispers, lies, secrets. So Barristan knows his limitations, and we realise he's probably a new breed of game player. He's playing the Game of Thrones, but actually doesn't want to be. He is trapped, and his need to serve a king or a queen has led him into this situation. He's now the only player we can think of, that never wanted any part. Right. And soon after we get something personal about Barristan. When thinking of Ashar Dane, we get this. She died never knowing that Sir Barristan had loved her. 
Yeah, so this is really a surprise and it's actually quite sad. For all Baristan's lusting for honour, it seems that he really fell for Ashara Dane. The timing of this reveal, and amidst all the self-doubts, highlights how deep and important this is to Baristan. If he'd just unhorsed Rhaegar at the tourney of Harrenhal, he could have chosen Ashara to be the queen of love and beauty, and she would have known about his love for her. But an impossible love, as Barristan reflects on his vow of celibacy, and it's obviously another time in his life where he felt this inner conflict. It says that of all his failures, and there's been a lot with kings dying and so on, not crowning Ashara had haunted him the most. And it might be because of what happened with Rhaegar and Lyanna, but the insinuation could also be that it's all because he loved Ashara and it might have saved her life. Yes, so who would have thought Baristan had been so deep in love? And as he goes off with the brazen beasts to seize King Hisdar, he thinks the faces of all the kings they had served and failed floated before him in the darkness, and the faces of the brothers who had served beside him in the king's guard as well. He wondered how many of them would have done what he was about to do. Some, surely? But not all. Some would not have hesitated to strike down the shavepate as a traitor. Hmm, and remember, he told the shavepate that Hisdar was Danny's husband and king, and he serves her, so very murky territory. And of course, we had the Kraskill reading earlier, but there's something interesting as Barristan leads Hisdar off. Yeah, it is interesting. He took the king's arm and led him from the bedchamber, feeling strangely light-headed, almost drunk. I was a king's guard. What am I now? Right, as we said, an identity crisis. When Jamie has his king-slaying hand cut off, he looks at his stump and thinks, Leaving what? Who am I now? So another neat parallel between the two. Jamie had his identity as a swordsman and kingslayer removed. Barristan's identity was of the Kingsguard and has been challenged in various different ways. But now he faces perhaps the biggest challenges of his life, both internally and externally. Yeah, he must redefine himself in the absence of having someone to serve, wrestle with his conscience over the arrest of his dar, and he must lead his troops to victory in the Battle of Fire. Okay, and we'll wrap it up, because we're going to look at the Battle of Marine next episode, or the Battle of Fire as it's known. It will be a continuation, and Brynden Beefish will be our special guest. We're going to look at what's going on there, and we've got a few ideas to try and make it a very different episode from your usual podcast. Yeah, we can't wait. We want to make something exciting for you listeners. Barristan has deep regrets about Rhaegar not becoming king and perhaps sees sitting Danny on the Iron Throne as the next best thing, his way of atoning. But first, he must face the young Kai. If he wins, he might find himself playing the Game of Thrones once more, which, in his own words, is played only by the worst Kingsguard. And so, what of that perfect night? If Barristan's arc does turn out to be the journey from perfect night to soiled night, how far is he along that continuum now? This much is clear. He's feeling a lot more like the soiled knight than he wants to be. 
And we'll leave you with a message from today's sponsor, who happens to be none other than Sir Barristan Selmy himself. Looking for a career path? Want to learn about Westerosi honour? Can't face a short life in the scarlet sands of the fighting pits? Then come and join Sir Barristan's Knight Academy, based in the wonderful city of Marine. Learn to ride horses, be chivalrous and defend the weak. Must be a damn sight better than fighting wild animals or being disemboweled in a stadium. Our Queen will want protecting when I, Sir Grandfather, meets an end. I'm already considering raising Tumco and Larak to knighthood, and mayhaps the Red Lamb too. Learn from the best at Sir Barristan's Knight Academy. Please inquire at the Great Pyramid and do watch out for the Sons of the Harpy, the Pale Mare and the Huge War waiting outside our walls. And that was our look at Barristan Selmy. Hope you enjoyed the listen. Next time, we'll be back with a very different look at the Battle of Fire. We need to give credit where credit is due, so thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his songs. Death of Kings 2, Water Lily, and Constance were used today. Thanks also to Nine Inch Nails for the license to remix and use elements of their music, and to Westerine for his song, The Barristan Blues. Full credits are in the MP3 tag and on our website. Finally, thanks to all you listeners, and we'll be back soon with the Battle of Fire. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.